Chapter Five of the Benefactress by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter Five. Stralsund is an old town of gabled houses, ancient churches, and quaint, roughly paved streets, forming an island and joined to the mainland by dikes. It looks its best in the early summer when the green and marshy plains on whose edge it stands are strewn with king-cups, and the little white clouds hang over them almost motionless, and the cattle are out and the larks sing, and the orange and red sails of the fishing-smacks on the narrow belt of sea that divides the town from the island of Rügen make brilliant points of contrasting colour between the blue of water and sky. There is a divine freshness and brightness about the surrounding stretches of coarse grass and common flowers at that blessed season of the year. The air is full of the smell of the sea. The sun beats down fiercely on plain and city. The people come out of the rooms in which most of their life is spent and stand in the doorways and remark on the heat. An occasional heavy cart bumps over the stones, heard in that sleepy place for several minutes before and after its passing. There is an honest, tarry, fishy smell everywhere, and the traveller, of poetic temperament in search of the picturesque, and not too nice about his comforts, could not fail, visiting it for the first time in the month of June, to be wholly delighted that he had come. But in winter, and especially in those doubly gloomy days at the end of winter, when spring ought to have shown some signs of its approach and has not done so, those days of howling winds and driving rain and frequent belated snowstorms, this plain is merely a bleak expanse of dreariness, with a forlorn old town huddling in its farthest corner. It was at its very bleakest and dreariest on the morning that Susie and her three companions travelled across it. "'What a place!' exclaimed Susie, as mile after mile was traversed and there was still the same succession of flat ploughed fields, marshes and ploughed fields again, with a rare group of furiously swaying pine-trees or of silver birches bent double before the wind. "'What a part of the world to come and live in! That old uncle of yours was as cracked as he could be to think you'd ever stay here for good. And imagine spending even a shilling buying land here! I wouldn't take a barrow full as a gift!' "'Well, I am taking a great many barrowfuls,' said Anna, "'and I am sure Uncle Joachim was right to buy a place here. He was always right.' "'Of course it's your duty now to praise him up. Perhaps it gets better farther on, but I don't see how anybody can squeeze two thousand a year out of a desert like this.' The prospect from the railway that day was certainly not attractive, but Anna told herself that any place would look dreary in such weather— and was much too happy in the first flush of independence to be depressed by anything whatever. Had she not that very morning given the chambermaid at the Berlin Hotel so bounteous a reward for services not rendered that the woman herself had said it was too much? Thus making amends for those innumerable departures from hotels when Susie had escaped without giving anything at all. Had she not also asked, and readily obtained, permission of Susie at the station in Berlin, to pay for the tickets of the whole party? And had it not been a delightful and warming feeling, buying those tickets for other people, instead of having tickets bought by other people for herself? At Passewalk, a little town halfway between Berlin and Stralsund, where the train stopped ten minutes, she insisted on getting out, defying the sleet and the puddles, 
and went into the refreshment room and brought eggs and rolls and cakes, everything she could find that was least offensive. Also a guide-book to Stralsund, though she was not going to stop in Stralsund. Also some postcards with views on them, though she never used postcards with views on them, and came back loaded with parcels, her face glowing with childish pleasure at spending money. "'My dear Anna,' said Susie, but she was hungry, and ate a roll with perfect complacency, allowing Letty to do the same, although only two days had elapsed since she had so energetically lectured her on the grossness of eating in trains. Susie was in a particularly amiable frame of mind, and in spite of the weather was looking forward to seeing the place Uncle Joachim had thought would be a fit home for his niece, and as she and Anna were sitting together at one end of the carriage, and Letty and Miss Leech were at the other, and there was no one else in the compartment, she was neither upset by the too near contemplation of her daughter, nor by the aspect of other travellers lunching. Miss Leech, always mindful of her duties, was making the most of her five hours' journey by endeavouring, in a low voice, to clear away the haze that hung in her pupil's mind round the details of her last winter's German studies. "'Don't you remember anything of Professor Smith's lectures, Letty?' she inquired. "'Why, they were all about just this part of Germany.' "'And it makes it so much more interesting if one knows what happened at the different places. Stralsund, you know, where we shall be presently, has a most turbulent and interesting past.' "'Has it?' said Letty. "'Well, I can't help it, Leechy.' "'No, but, my dear, you should try to recollect something at least of what you heard at the lectures. Have you forgotten the paper you wrote about Wallenstein?' "'I remember I did a paper.' "'Beastly hard it was, too.' "'Oh, Letty, don't say beastly. "'It really isn't a ladylike word. "'Why, Mamma's always saying it. "'Oh, well, don't you know what Wallenstein said "'when he was besieging Stralsund "'and found it such a difficult task?' "'I suppose he said, too, that it was beastly hard. "'Oh, Letty, it was something about chains. "'Now do you remember?' "'Chains,' repeated Letty, looking bored. "'Do you know, Leechy? "'Yes, I still remember that, "'though I confess that I have forgotten "'the greater part of what I heard. "'Then what do you ask me for "'when you know I don't know? "'What did he say about chains?' "'He said that he'd take the city "'if it were riveted to heaven "'with chains of iron,' "'said Miss Leech dramatically. "'What a goat! "'Oh, hush, don't say those horrible words. "'Where do you learn them?' "'Not from me, certainly not from me,' said Miss Leech, distressed. She had a profound horror of slang, and was bewildered by the way in which these weeds of rhetoric sprang up on all occasions in Letty's speech. "'Well, and was it?' "'Was it what, my dear? Chained to heaven?' "'The city? Why, how can a city be chained to heaven, Letty? Then what did he say it for?' "'He was using a metaphor.' "'Oh!' said Letty, who did not know what a metaphor was, but supposed it must be something used in sieges, and preferred not to inquire too closely. "'He was obliged to retire,' said Miss Leech, "'leaving enormous numbers of slain on the field.' "'Poor beasts! I say, Leechy,' she whispered, "'don't let's bother about history now. Go on with Mr. Jessop. You'd got to where he called you Amy for the first time.' Mr. Jessop was the person already alluded to in these pages as the only man Miss Leech had ever loved, and his history was of absorbing interest to Letty, 
who never tired of hearing his first appearance on Miss Leech's horizon described, with his subsequent advances before the stage of open courting was reached, the courting itself, and its melancholy end. For Mr. Jessop, a clergyman in the Church of England, with a vicarage all ready to receive his wife, had suddenly become a prey to new convictions, and had gone over to the Church of Rome, whereupon Miss Leech's father, also a clergyman of the Church of England, had talked a great deal about the scarlet woman of Babylon, and had shut the door in Mr. Jessop's face when next he called to explain. This had happened when Miss Leech was twenty. Now, at thirty, an orphan resigned to the world's buffets, she found a gentle consolation in repeating the story of her ill-starred engagement to her keenly interested friend and pupil, and the oftener she repeated it, the less did it grieve her, till at last she came actually to enjoy the remembrance of it, pleased to have played the principal part, even in a drama that was hissed off her little stage, glad to find a sympathetic listener, dwelling much and fondly on every incident of that short period of importance and glory. It is doubtful whether she would ever have extracted the same amount of pleasure from Mr. Jessop had he remained fixed in the faith of his fathers and married her in due season. By his succession he had unconsciously become a sort of providence to Letty and herself, saving them from endless hours of dullness, furnishing their lonely schoolroom life with romance and mystery, and if in Miss Leech's mind he gradually took on the sweet intangibility of a pleasant dream, he was the very pith and marrow of Letty's existence. She glowed and thrilled at the thought that perhaps she too would one day have a Mr. Jessop of her own, who would have convictions, and give up everything, herself included, for what he believed to be right. As usual, they at once became absorbed in Mr. Jessop, forgetting in the contemplation of his excellencies everything else in the world, till they were roused to realities by their arrival at Stralsund, and Susie, thrusting books and bags and umbrellas into their passive hands, pushed them out of the carriage, into the wet. Hilton, the maid shared by Susie and Anna, had then to be found, and urged to clamber down quickly onto the low platform, where she stood helplessly, the picture of injured superiority, hustled by the hurrying porters and passengers, out of whose way she scorned to move, while Anna went to look for the luggage and have it put into the cart that had been sent for it. This cart was an ordinary farm-cart, used for bringing in the hay in June, but also used for carrying out the manure in November, and on a sack of straw lying in the bottom it was expected that Hilton should sit. The farm-boy who drove it, and who helped the porter to tie the trunks to its sides, lest they should too violently bump against each other and Hilton on the way, said so. The coachman of the carriage waiting for the Herr Schaften pointed with his whip first at Hilton, and then at the cart, and said so. The porter, who seemed to think it quite natural, said so, and everybody was waiting for Hilton to get in, who, when she had at length grasped the situation, went to Susie, who was looking frightened and pretending to be absorbed by the sky, and with a voice shaken by passion, and a face changing from white to red, announced her intention of only going in that cart as a corpse, when they might do with her as they pleased, but as a living body with breath in it, never. Here was a difficulty, and idlers, whose curiosity was not extinguishable by wind and sleet, began to press round, and people who had come by the same train stopped on their way out to listen. The farm-boy patted the sack, and declared that it was clean straw. 
The coachman stood up on his box and swore that it was a new sack. The porter assured the Fräulein that it was as comfortable as a feather bed, and nobody seemed to understand that what she was being offered was an insult. Susie was afraid of Hilton, who had been in the service of duchesses, and who held these duchesses over her mistress's head whenever her mistress wanted to do anything that was inconvenient to herself, quoting their sayings, pointing out how they would have acted in any given case, and always, it appeared, they had done exactly what Hilton desired. Susie's admiration for duchesses was slavish, and Hilton was treated with an indulgent liberality that was absurd compared to the stinginess displayed towards everyone else. Hilton was not more horrified than her mistress when she saw the farm-cart and understood that it was for the luggage and the maid. It was impossible to take her with them, in what the porter called the Herrschaftliche Wagen, for it was a kind of Victoria, and how to get their four selves into it was a sufficient puzzle. "'What shall we do?' said Susie, in despair, to Anna. "'Do? Why, she'll have to go in it. Hilton, don't be a foolish person, and don't keep us here in the wet. This isn't England, and nobody thinks anything here of driving in farm carts. It's patriarchal simplicity, that's all. People are staring at you now because you are making such a fuss. Get in like a good soul and let us start. Only as a corpse, ma'am, reiterated Hilton with chattering teeth. Never as a living body. Nonsense, said Anna impatiently. What shall we do? repeated Susie. "'Poor Hilton, what barbarians they must be here!' "'We must send her in a drushki, then, if it isn't too far, and we can get one to go.' "'A drushki in all that distance? It would be ruinous!' "'Well, we can't stand here amusing these people for ever.' "'Oh, I wish I had never come to this horrible place!' cried Susie, really made miserable by Hilton's rage. But Anna did not stay to listen, either to her laments or to Hilton's monotonous, only as a corpse, milady, and was already arranging with an unwilling driver, who had no desire whatever to drive to Kleinwalder, but consented to do so on being promised twenty marks, a rest and a feed of oats for his horses, and any little addition in the shape of refreshment and extra money that might suggest itself to Anna's generosity. "'You know, Anna, you can't expect me to pay for the fly,' said Susie uneasily, when the appeased Hilton had been put into it and was out of earshot. "'That dreadful cart is your property, I suppose.' "'Of course it is,' said Anna, smiling. "'And of course the fly is my affair. How magnificent I feel disposing of carts and droshkies. Now, will you please to get into my carriage? And do you observe the extreme respectfulness of my coachman?' "'The coachman?' a strange-looking, round-shouldered being, with a long, grizzled beard, a dark-blue cloth cap on his head, and a body clothed in a fawn-coloured suit and gaiters, on which a great many tarnished silver buttons adorned with Uncle Joachim's coat of arms were fastened at short intervals, removed his cap while his new mistress and her party were entering the carriage, and did not put it on again till they were ready to start. "'Quite as though we were royalties,' said Susie. "'But the rest of him isn't.' replied Anna, who was greatly amused by the turnout. "'Do you like my horses, Susie, or do you suspect them of having been ploughing all the morning?' "'Oh, well,' she added quickly, ashamed of laughing at any part of her dear uncle's gift. "'I suppose one has to have heavily built horses in this part of the world, where the roads are probably frightfully bad.' "'Their tails might be a little shorter,' said Susie. "'They might,' said Anna serenely. "'With the aid of the porter,' 
who knew all about Uncle Joachim's will and was deeply interested, they were at last somehow packed into the carriage, and away they rattled over the rough stones, threading the outskirts of the town on the mainland, the hail and wind in their faces, and out into the open country with the horses' heads turned towards the north. The fly containing Hilton followed more leisurely behind, and the farm-cart containing the unused sack of straw followed the fly. "'We can't see much of Stralsund,' said Anna, trying to peep round the hood at the old town across the lakes, separating it from the mainland. "'It's a very historical town,' observed Susie, who had happened to notice, as she idly turned over the pages of her Baedeker on the way down, that there was a long description of it, with dates. "'As of course you know,' she added, turning sharply to her daughter. "'Rather,' said Letty, "'Wallenstein said he'd take it if it were chained to heaven, and when he found it wasn't, he was frightfully sick and went away and left them all in the fields.' Miss Leech, who was on the little seat, struggling to defend herself from the fury of the elements with an umbrella, looked anxious, but Susie only said in a gratified voice, "'I'm glad you remember what you've been taught.' To which Letty, who was in great spirits, and thought this drive in the wet huge fun, again replied heartily, "'Rather!' and her mother congratulated herself on having done the right thing in bringing her to Germany, home of erudition and profundity, already evidently beginning to do its work. The carriage smelt of fish, which presently upset Susie, who, unfortunately for her, had a nose that smelt everything. While they were in the town she thought the smell was in the streets, and bore it, but out in the open, where there was not a house to be seen, she found that it was in the carriage. She fidgeted and looked about, feeling with her foot under the opposite seats, expecting to find a basket somewhere, and determined, if she found one, to push it out quietly and say nothing, for that she should drive for two hours with her handkerchief up to her nose was more than anybody could expect of her. Already she had done more than anybody ought to expect of her, she reflected, in going to the expense of the journey and the inconvenience of the absence from home for Anna's sake, and she hoped that Anna felt grateful. She had never yet shrunk from her duty towards Anna, or indeed from her duty towards anyone, and she was sure she never would. But her duty certainly did not include the passive endurance of offensive smells. "'What are you looking for?' asked Anna. "'Why the fish?' "'Oh, do you smell it too?' "'Smell it? I should think I did. It's killing me.' "'Oh, poor Susie!' laughed Anna, who was possessed by an uncontrollable desire to laugh at everything. The conveyance—it could hardly be called a carriage—in which they were seated, and which she supposed was the one destined for her use if she lived at Kleinwalde, was unlike anything she had yet seen. It was very old, with enormous wheels, and bumped dreadfully, and the seat was so constructed that she was continually slipping forward, and having to push herself back again. It was lined throughout, including the hood, with a white and black shepherd's plaid in large squares, the white squares mellowed by the stains of use and time, to varying shades of brown and yellow. When Miss Leech's umbrella was blown aside by a gust of wind, Anna could see her coachman's drab coat, with a little end of white tape that he had forgotten to tie, and whose uses she was unable to guess, fluttering gaily between its tails in the wind. On the left side of the box was a very big and gorgeous coat of arms in green and white. Uncle Joachim's colours, and whichever way she turned her head, there was the overpowering smell of fish. "'We must be taking our dinner home with us,' she said, "'but I don't see it anywhere.' 
"'There isn't anything under the seats. "'Perhaps the man has got it on the box. "'Ask him, Anna. "'I really can't stand it.' "'Anna did not know quite how to attract his attention. "'It seemed undignified to poke him, "'but she did not know his name, "'and the wind blew her voice back in the direction of Stralsund "'when she had cleared it, and coughed, and called out rather shyly, "'Oh, Kutcher! Kutcher!' "'Then she remembered that O was not German, "'and that Uncle Joachim had used sonorous achs in its place, "'and she began again, "'Ach, Kutcher! Kutcher!' "'Letty giggled.' "'Go it, Aunt Anna,' she said encouragingly. "'Dig him in the ribs with your umbrella, or I will, if you like.' Her mother, with her handkerchief to her nose, exhorted her not to be vulgar. Letty explained at some length that she was only being nice and offering assistance. "'I really shall have to poke him,' said Anna, her faint cries of Kutcher quite lost in the rattling of the carriage and the howling of the wind. "'Or perhaps you would touch his arm, Miss Leech.' Miss Leech turned and very gingerly touched his sleeve. He at once whistled to his horses, who stopped dead, snatched off his cap, and, looking down at Anna, inquired her commands. It was done so quickly that Anna, whose conversational German was exceedingly rusty, was quite unable to remember the word for fish, and sat looking up at him helplessly while she vainly searched her brains. "'What is fish in German?' she said, appealing to Susie, distressed that the man should be waiting capless in the rain. "'Letty, what's the word for fish?' inquired Susie sternly. "'Fish?' repeated Letty, looking stupid. "'Fish?' echoed Miss Leech, trying to help. "'Fish?' said the coachman himself, catching at the word. "'Oh, yes, how utterly silly I am!' cried Anna, blushing and showing her dimples. "'It's fish, of course!' "'A kutcher, voiced fish!' The man looked blank, then his face brightened, and pointing with his whip to the rolling sea on their right, visible across the flat intervening fields, he said that there was much fish in it, especially herrings. "'What does he say?' asked Susie from behind her handkerchief. "'He says that there are herrings in the sea. "'Is the man a fool?' Letty laughed uproariously. The coachman, seeing Letty and Anna laugh, thought he must have said the right thing after all, and looked very pleasant. "'Aber im Wagen,' persisted Anna. "'Voist fish im Wagen.' The coachman stared. Then he said vaguely, in a soothing voice, not in the least knowing what she meant, "'Nein, nein, gnadige Fräulein,' and evidently hoped she would be satisfied. "'Aber es reicht, es reicht.' cried Anna, not satisfied at all, and lifting up her nose in unmistakable displeasure. His face brightened again. "'Ach, so, jawohl, jawohl!' he exclaimed cheerfully, and hastened to explain that there were no fish nearer than the sea, but that the grease he had used that morning to make the leather of the hood and apron shine certainly had a fishy smell, as he himself had noticed. "'Gracious miss loves not the smell!' he inquired anxiously, for he had seven children, and was very desirous that his new mistress should be pleased. Anna laughed and shook her head, and though she said with great emphasis that she did not love it at all, she looked so friendly that he felt reassured. "'What does he say?' asked Susie. "'Why, I'm afraid we shall have it all the way. It's the grease he's been rubbing the leather with.' Bob. "'Barbarian!' cried Susie angrily, feeling sick already, and certain that she would be quite ill by the end of the drive. "'And you laugh at him and encourage him, instead of taking up your position at once, and showing him that you won't stand any nonsense. He ought to be 
to be unboxed she added in great wrath for she had heard of delinquent clergymen being unfrocked and why should not delinquent coachmen be unboxed anna laughed again she tried not to but she could not help it and susie made still more angry by this childish behaviour sulked during the rest of the drive go on avanti said anna who hardly knew any italian and when she was in italy and wanted her words never could find them but had been troubled the last two days by the way in which these words came to her lips every time she opened them to speak german the coachman understood her however and they went on again along the straight high-road that stretched away before them to a distant bend the high-road or chaussee was planted on either side with maples and between the maples big whitewashed stones had been set to mark the way at night and behind the rows of trees and stones ditches had been dug parallel with the road as a protection to the crops in summer from the possible wanderings of erring carts if a cart erred it tumbled into the ditch the arrangement was simple and efficacious on the right across some marshy land they could see the sea for a little while with the flat coast of rugen opposite and then some rising ground bare of trees and brilliantly green with winter corn hid it from view on the left was the dreary plain dotted at long intervals with farms and their little groups of trees and here and there with windmills working furiously in the gale the wind was icy and the december snow still lay in drifts in the ditches in that leaden landscape made up of grey and brown and black the patches of winter rye were quite startling in their greenness susie thought it the most god-forsaken country she had ever seen and expressed this opinion plainly on her face and in her attitudes without any need for opening her lips shuddering back ostentatiously into her corner wrapping herself with elaborate care in her furs and behaving as slaves to duty sometimes do when the paths they have to tread are rough after driving along the chaussee for about an hour they passed a big house standing among trees back from the road on the right and a little farther on came to a small village the carriage pulled up with a jerk and looking eagerly round the hood anna found that they had come to a standstill in front of a new red brick building whose steps were crowded with children two or three men and some women were with the children two of the men appeared to be clergymen and the elder a middle-aged mild-faced man came down the steps and bowing profoundly proceeded to welcome anna solemnly on behalf of those children from kleinwalde who attended this school to her new home he concluded that anna was the person to be welcomed because he could see nothing of the lady in the other corner but her eyes and they looked anything but friendly whereas the young lady on the left was leaning forwards and smiling and holding out her hand he took it and shook it slowly up and down while he begged her to allow the hood of the carriage to be put back so that the children from her village who had walked three miles to welcome her might be able to see her and on anna's readily agreeing to this himself helped the coachman with his own white-gloved hands to put it down susie was therefore exposed to the full fury of the blast and shrank still farther into her corner an interesting and tantalizing object to the school-children a dark mysterious combination of fur cock's feathers and black eyebrows then the clergyman hat in hand made a speech he spoke distinctly as one accustomed to speaking often and long and anna understood every word she was wholly taken aback by these ceremonies and had no idea of what she should say in reply 
but sat smiling vaguely at him, looking very pretty and very shy. She soon found that her smiles were inappropriate, and they died away, for warming as he proceeded, the parson, it appeared, was taking it for granted that she intended to live on her property, and was eloquently discanting on the comfort she was going to be to the poor, assuring those present that she would be a mother to the sick, nursing them with her tender woman's hands, an angel of mercy to the hungry, feeding them in the hour of their distress, a friend and sister to the little children, succouring them, caring for them, pitiful of their weakness and their sins. His face lit up with enthusiasm as he went on, and Anna was thankful that Susie could not understand. This crowd of children, the women, the young parson, her coachman, were all hearing promises made on her behalf that she had no thought of fulfilling. She looked down and twisted her fingers about nervously, and felt uncomfortable. At the end of his speech the parson, his eyes full of the tears drawn forth by his own eloquence, held up his hand and solemnly blessed her, rounding off his blessing with a loud Amen, after which there was an awkward pause. Susie heard the Amen, and guessed that something in the nature of a blessing was being invoked, and made a movement of impatience. The parson was odious in her eyes, first because he looked like the ministers of the Baptist chapels of her unmarried youth, but principally because he was keeping her there in a gale, and prolonging the tortures she was enduring from the smell of fish. Anna did not know what to say after the Amen, and looked up more shyly than ever, and stammered in her confusion, Dankeser, hoping that it was a proper remark to make, whereupon the parson bowed again, as one who should say, Pray, don't mention it. Then another man, evidently the schoolmaster, took out a tuning-fork, gave out a note, and the children sang a chorale, following it up with other more cheerful songs, in which the word Fuhling and Willkommen were repeated a great many times, while the wind howled flattest contradiction. When this was over, the parson begged leave to introduce the other clerical-looking person, a tall, narrow youth, also in white kid gloves, buttoned up tightly in a long coat of broadcloth, with a pallid face and thick, upright flaxen hair. Herr Vicar Klutz, said the elder parson with a wave of the hand, and the Herr Vicar, making his bow and having his limp hand heartily grasped by that other little hand, and his furtive eyes smiled into by those other friendly eyes, became, on the spot, desperately enamoured, which was very natural, seeing that he had not spoken to a woman under forty for six months, and was himself twenty and a poet. He spent the rest of the afternoon shut up in his bedroom, where, refusing all nourishment, he composed a poem in which berauschten sin was made to rhyme with englanderin while the elder parson in whose house he lived thought he was writing his good friday sermon then the schoolmaster was introduced and then came the two women the schoolmaster's wife and the parson's wife and when anna had smiled and murmured polite and incoherent little speeches to each in turn and had nodded and bowed at least a dozen times to each of these ladies who could by no means have done with their curtsies and had introduced them to the dumb figure in the corner, during which ceremonies Letty stared round-eyed and open-mouthed at the schoolchildren, and the schoolchildren stared round-eyed and open-mouthed at Letty, and Miss Leech looked demure, and Susie's brows were contracted by suffering, she wondered whether she might not now with propriety continue her journey, and if so, whether it were expected that she should give the signal. Everybody was smiling at everybody else by way of filling up this pause of hesitation, 
except Susie, who shut her eyes with great dignity and shivered in so marked a manner that the parson himself came to the rescue and bade the coachman help him put up the hood again, explaining to Anna, as he did so, that her Frau Schwester was not used to this climate. Evidently the moment had come for going on, and the bows that had but just left off began again, with renewed vigour. Anna was anxious to say something pleasant at the finish, so she asked the parson's wife, as she bade her good-bye, whether she and her husband would come to Kleinwalder the next day, to dinner. This invitation produced a very deep curtsy, and a flush of gratification, but the recipient turned to her lord before accepting it, to inquire his pleasure. "'I fear not to-morrow, gracious miss,' said the parson, "'for it is Good Friday.' "'Ach, ja,' stammered Anna, ashamed of herself for having forgotten. "'Ach, ja,' exclaimed the parson's wife, still more ashamed of herself for having forgotten. "'Perhaps Saturday, then?' suggested Anna. The parson murmured something about quiet hours preparatory to the Sabbath, but his wife, a person who struck Anna as being quite extraordinarily stout, was burning with curiosity to examine those foreign ladies more conveniently, and especially to see what manner of being would emerge from the pile of fur and feathers in the corner, and she urged him in a rapid aside to do for once without quiet hours, whereupon he patted her on the cheek, smiled indulgently, and said he would make an exception, and do himself the honour of appearing. This being settled, Anna said, "'Gehen Sie,' to her coachman, who again showed his intelligence by understanding her, and in a cloud of smiles and bows they drove away, the schoolgirls making curtsies, the schoolboys taking off their caps, and the parson standing hat in hand with his arm around his wife's waist, as serenely as though it had been a summer's day and no one looking. Anna became used to these displays of conjugal regard in public later on, but this first time she turned to Susie with a laugh, when the hood had hidden the group from view, and asked her if she had seen it. But Susie had seen nothing, for her eyes were shut, and she refused to answer any questions otherwise than by a feeble shake of her head. On the other side of the village the chasse came to an end, and two deep sandy roads took its place. There was a signpost at their junction one arm of which, pointing to the right-hand road that ran down close to the sea, had Kleinwalder, scrawled on it, and beside this signpost a man on a horse was waiting for them. "'Good gracious! More rot!' ejaculated Susie as the carriage stopped again, shaken out of the dignity of sulks by these repeated shocks. "'Oberinspektor Delvig,' said the man, introducing himself, and sweeping off his hat, and bowing lower and more obsequiously than any one had yet done. "'This must be the inspector. Uncle Joachim hoped I'd keep,' said Anna in an undertone. "'I don't care who he is, but for heaven's sake don't let him make a speech. I can't stand this sort of thing any longer. You'll have me ill on your hands if you're not careful, and you won't like that, so you had better stop him.' "'I can't stop him,' said Anna, perplexed. She also had had enough of speeches. Gestatten, gnädige Fräulein, das ist meine gehorsamste Erbeitung ausbreche, began the glib inspector, bowing at every second word over his horse's ears. There was no escape, and they had to hear him out. The man had prepared his speech, and say it he would. It was not so long as the parson's, but was quite as flowery in another way, overflowing with respectful allusions to the deceased master and with expressions of unbounded loyalty, obedience, and devotion to the new mistress. Susie shut her eyes again when she found he was not to be stopped, 
and gave herself up for lost. What could Hilton, who must be close behind, waiting in the cold, uncomforted by any food since leaving Berlin, think of all this? Susie dreaded the moment when she would have to face her. The inspector finished all he had intended saying, and then, assuming a more colloquial tone, informed Anna that from the signpost onward she would be driving through her own property, and asked permission to ride by her side the rest of the way. So they had his company for the last two miles, and his conversation, of which there was much, for he had a ready tongue and explained things to Anna in a very loud voice as they went along, expatiating on the magnificence of the crops the previous summer, and assuring her that the crops of the coming summer would be even more magnificent, for he had invented a combination of manures which would give such results that all Pomerania's breath would be taken away. The road here was terrible, and the horses could hardly drag the carriage through the sand. It lurched and heaved from side to side, creaking and groaning alarmingly. Miss Leech was in imminent peril. Anna held on with both hands, and hardly had leisure to put in appropriate achs and yas and questions of becoming intelligence when the inspector paused to take breath. She did not like his looks, and wished that she could follow Susie's example, and avoid the necessity of seeing him by the simple expedient of shutting her eyes. But somehow, she did not quite know how, responsibilities and obligations were suddenly pressing heavily upon her. These people had all but made up their minds that she was going to be and do certain things, and though she assured herself that it did not in the least matter how they had made up their minds, yet she felt obliged to behave in the way that was expected of her. She did not want to talk to this unpleasant-looking man, and what he told her about the crops and their marvellousness was half unintelligible to her, and wholly a bore. Yet she did talk to him, and looked friendly, and affected to understand and be deeply interested in all he said. They passed through a plantation of young beeches, planted, Delvig explained, by Uncle Joachim on his last visit, and after a few more yards of lurching in the sand, came to some woods, and got on to a fair road. "'The park!' said Delvig, superbly, with a wave of the hand. Susie opened her eyes at the word park, and looked about. "'It isn't a park,' she said peevishly. "'It's a forest. A horrid, gloomy, damp wilderness.' "'Oh, it's lovely!' cried Letty, giving a jump of delight as she peered down the serried ranks of pine-trees. It was a thick wood of pines and beeches, railed off from the road on either side by wooden rails painted in black-and-white stripes. Uncle Joachim had been the loyalist of Prussians, and his loyalty overflowed even to his fences. Ascetic instincts he had none, and if he had been brought to see it would not have cared at all that the railings made the otherwise beautiful avenue look like the entrance to a restaurant or a railway station. The stripes, renewed every year and of startling distinctness, were an outward and visible sign of his staunch devotion to the King of Prussia. The very lining of the carriage with its white and black squares was symbolic, and when they came to the gate within which the house itself stood, Two Prussian eagles frowned down at them from the gate posts. End of chapter five.